Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Christopher Rufo. Uh, he's a contributing editor at the magazine and a regular figure on this podcast. He's He's been, been with us a number of times. He's a documentary filmmaker based in Seattle. He's the director of the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty. And as I noted, uh, he is a City Journal contributing editor. You can find him on Twitter, at RealChrisRufo. Chris has been writing an ongoing series for us at City Journal on the impact of critical race theory in American schools. He's up to eight pieces in the series, and uh, they've, they've started really to generate a lot of attention. As many of our listeners are probably aware, CRT, or variations of it, has been popular in elite institutions like universities for, for a while now, but its push into K-12 through education, both public and private, has been motivated in part by the George Floyd protests this past summer, and it has, I believe, been a wake-up call for many Americans who find the content of this quite disturbing. We've published, uh, as I mentioned, eight uh, of these pieces so far as part of the series, and you can expect them um, you know, more, more in the pipeline soon. If you haven't read any of them, I really encourage you to check them out because uh, they're they're just uh, filled with stunning details, and we'll talk about some of the stories here on the podcast today. So, Chris, thanks again for joining us, as always. It's great to be with you. Uh, before we get into some of these specific cases you've written about, I, I wanted to recognize that you've developed quite an audience uh, for your work over the last year. Many of the stories you've reported on have come from anonymous individuals or whistleblowers at companies or schools that are undergoing this kind of, um, you know, diversity training, CRT-inspired diversity training, or something very similar to it. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners um, how your sources are contacting you, because this is very interesting, and what kind of folks are getting in touch with you. Yeah, it's been actually uh, really interesting to connect with so many people, but it's pretty simple. The more I report on these stories, the more uh, kind of attention they generate, uh, the more of an audience they build. I'm getting inbound communication predominantly through uh, a simple kind of proton mail, uh, secure email box. And uh, um, I have my, my, my very busy research assistant is sifting through uh, sometimes hundreds of messages a day from uh, parents whose children have to uh, do kind of uh, r- racial activist training in elementary schools or uh, corporate executives that are trying to figure out how to fight back against this kind of woke politics in the boardroom uh, and everything in between. And uh, it's it's been, I think, most interesting to get to know these folks and to really understand that they're like everyone else, they're mostly middle of the road people who feel no recourse to stand up against this ideology in their institutions and leaking documents protecting that protect in, in a way that protects their anonymity uh, is for most of these people the only way they feel like they can uh, push back. Right, because when they do push back in these settings um, directly, they often find themselves in a lot of trouble, right? They do. Yeah. I, I think two of the sources on stories that I've uh, worked on or been, you know, kind of tangentially involved in, I, I think only two of the kind of what would have previously been anonymous sources came forward. 
Um, you know, in one case at the Sandia National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, this person was placed on an administrative leave, was put under investigation. Uh, another story um, that's kind of made the rounds recently was a woman who worked in kind of residential life at Smith College. Uh, she spoke out publicly against these kind of diversity ideologies. Um, she was put on leave, placed under investigation, and really pushed out of her employment. So the message to people is really clear. And I think the dynamic within American institutions right now is that the people who are most aggressive set the tone, uh, they set the official dogma. And then if there's anyone who dissents, especially publicly, um, they're really on the out. They're, in essence, setting themselves up uh, to get purged. The most recent uh, in the series that you've been writing uh, for us is about the Buffalo Public School District. And as you note there, the story of Buffalo is unfortunately uh, a sad and all too familiar one. It's a, a struggling old industrial town, which these days has some of the state's worst performing schools, especially in its inner city schools. But the one thing Buffalo schools do have, you know, it seems is this incredibly active and vocal diversities are in its associate superintendent, whose name is uh, Fatima Morel. Now, she's been in the news before. Uh, last year, she created a new curriculum promoting Black Lives Matter in the classroom and an anti-racist training program for teachers. Could you give us a, a fuller picture of what's being taught specifically in this context in Buffalo and what you've learned recently about what's going on in some of their training sessions? Yeah, the, the details from Buffalo are pretty shocking. And uh, I've been working with whistleblowers within the school district uh, to to basically kind of cultivate more videos, more PowerPoint presentations, more slides, building up a kind of trove of documents about what's happening in teacher training and in the classroom. And uh, the Diversities are is a kind of unapologetic far left activist. She says in one of the videos that I obtained that teachers must become woke and achieve critical consciousness, which is a Marxist pedagogical idea developed by a theoretician named Paulo Freire in Brazil, um, basically says the education system should be uh, training students to identify their oppressors and then give them the kind of critical analysis and, and kind of revolutionary consciousness that's required in order, in order to eventually overthrow their oppressors. So that's the pedagogical model. And then uh, the lessons are pretty shocking. In kindergarten, uh, teachers are now required to show a video of, uh, of deceased black children, uh, including Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and some of the other cases. Um, and they're dramatized actually speaking to the kindergartners, warning them about, and I quote, racist police and state sanctioned violence. Um, you know, this idea of really kind of, kind of putting the kind of fear and division into very, very young kids uh, by middle school, uh, students in Buffalo are, are told um, that, uh, quote, all white people play a part in perpetuating systemic racism and uh, white elites work to perpetuate racism through politics, law, education and media. Uh, and this makes them uh, unfairly rich. Um, so, again, this kind of racialized Marxist dichotomy of oppressor and oppressed. And finally, by high school, the curriculum really moves towards teaching students how to become left-wing activists for anti-racism. Um, there's one lesson for high school students where they're asked to confront their whiteness in the classroom, uh, to kind of confess their white privilege, and to atone for their white privilege by committing uh, to use their voices uh, for these left-wing causes. 
And it really is right out of free air, and uh, it's it's just so fundamentally alienating, or must be for these young kids. Um, you just wonder where all that's going to be culminating. And when you think about how poor the Buffalo Buffalo public schools are, it's it's all the more outrageous. It's not as if these kids are, are in many cases, even graduating from high school. Um, you know, last week, you, you, your entry in this series uh, was on a school in New York City, uh, the East Side Community School, which is uh, an institution on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. As you point out there, the principal of the school recently sent a letter encouraging white parents to become quote, unquote, white traitors and advocate for white abolition. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about this story and what, you know, what's the background of that principle? Is it similar uh, to the associate superintendent in Buffalo? Yeah, it's it, it's somewhat similar. And, uh, you know, this school is a, is a public school in Manhattan and uh, serves predominantly minority students. And uh, by some of the kind of numbers that I've reviewed is actually a pretty uh, high functioning school. But the principal is a kind of longtime left wing activist. Uh, he was reprimanded um, in the past for organizing student protests where he was tr- going to take students uh, off campus onto the subway to, pr- to protest in front of the district attorney's office in Brooklyn. Uh, the Department of Education, you know, immediately cracked down on him, forced him to uh, stop this plan. Um, he was even arrested in the schoolhouse for uh, interfering with a police officer who was uh, a detaining and then taking a, a student out who had punched the school police officer in the face. Um, so this is a person who is just deeply enmeshed in left-wing politics. And I think a lot of these folks don't even see how these highly inflammatory phrases could be could be disputed. Um, it's the it's the kind of water that they swim in. And he sent a graph, a color coded color coded graph that says these are the eight stages of white identity. Um, at the at the very far end, the kind of red side, the bad side is white supremacist. Eventually, you move on to white confessional, uh, where you confess uh, the sins of of your whiteness. And then, as you said, they become you can become a white traitor, which is good. And then the highest form is a white abolitionist uh, for abolishing whiteness. And these are the kind of things that you'd expect in kind what, of- What does that even mean though, Chris? I don't quite understand. How do you abolish whiteness? It's a kind of uh, in- incredibly destructive way of talking about something that isn't under somebody's control, their, their skin color. I think it's it's part of this semantic game where a lot of these left-wing uh, intellectuals r- really want to rev up the language as far to the edge as possible. Um, and they'll say, you know, on, on one hand, a kind of, I think one reading of this is saying, hey, abolish whiteness um, is a euphemism that veers on very uh, kind of g- almost genocidal language um, applied to any other racial group there would be an immediate outcry. But they they would say, well, actually, we're not saying abolish white people in a physical sense. We're saying abolish the kind of metaphysical essence of whiteness that defines white culture and white institutions. Um, and that that whiteness um, uh, is really a set of cultural practices and power relations that we need to deconstruct uh, and then reconstruct for racial equity. 
Um, but the language in all of these cases in Buffalo and New York and other schools is, is, is like, you know, I've been reading a lot about the, the cultural revolution in China. Um, and it's, it's not that far away, at least linguistically, um, from a lot of the really ugly movements of the 20th, mid 20th century. Uh, the, the fact is this isn't restricted just to urban schools in left-wing cities. Uh, we're also seeing this kind of trend in non-urban schools, as you wrote in another entry in the series uh, about a Missouri middle school. Could you describe that uh, story for our listeners a little bit and, uh, and the oppression matrix that uh, the, the teachers had to uh, locate themselves on? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. This really is everywhere. I mean, certainly it's in Portland and Seattle and New York and and Buffalo, but it is also uh, in the Midwest. Um, it's in the South. It's in suburban communities across the country. And in, in that particular case, it was a Missouri middle school uh, that was uh, training teachers. They took all the teachers into the auditorium uh, and they said, um, you know, the first lesson is a kind of in this kind of anti-racism program is for all of you teachers to identify yourselves on an oppression matrix. And this oppression matrix listed traits of oppressors, um, uh, you know, white, middle-class, able-bodied, heterosexual uh, Christian males, uh, English-speaking Christian males, and then the oppressed. So people of color, women, religious minorities, sexual minorities, um, and was basically saying, we can divide this room uh, into the oppressors and the oppressed um, and creating this really artificial and really ugly division among teachers. Um, they also shared a, a kind of document, a kind of pyramid document that said, you know, you know, exp explicit uh, white supremacy is things like lynching and the KKK. Um, but there's another kind of uh, white supremacy that lurks in the hearts of, of you teachers. Uh, and this is some things like uh, that is white supremacy is uh, dressing up uh, as, a, as a Native American as a Halloween costume or calling the police on a black person uh, is white supremacist, no matter the context. Um, and they, they originally had even uh, the, the MAGA hat or Make America Great Again as an expression of, of white supremacy, uh, although they took that out in a subsequent version. And again, it's this kind of... Um, political ideology that is being pushed in the institutions in a way that is um, very aggressive. It's happening very quickly. And most people are frankly too scared to stand up and say, wait a minute, this has a nothing to do with our effectiveness in educating students. And, and at the, at the kind of other side of it um, is, is really a kind of activist indoctrination of both parents uh, or both teachers rather and students. You, you um, in part influenced by your reporting, uh, the Trump administration had moved to crack down on this kind of uh, radical pedagogy. Uh, the Biden administration has come in and immediately rescinded the executive order um, cracking down on critical race theory. I, I wonder where things stand on the federal level. And just recently, we've heard news that uh, West Virginia is going to you know, perhaps try to get rid of this in the public schools within that state through state legislation. Yeah, the executive order is actually, it's kind of a, an irony. The executive order is constructed in a way that basically says, 
Um, you know, you can no longer teach these divisive concepts in public institutions. And the divisive concepts were uh, basically stereotyping, scapegoating, or demeaning people on the basis of race and sex. So in, in, a, in a way, it's a pretty direct reiteration of the kind of legal ideas behind the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Right. Um, it, it just says you can't be racist or sexist um, uh, uh, or, um, or in some cases say that the United States is a uh, inherently racist country or advocate for the overthrow of the United States government. Um, uh, seems pretty basic that a, a public institution would not would not advocate for uh, you know its own overthrow, but um, the Biden administration framed it in a way that you know the Trump administration doesn't like diversity or doesn't like diversity training, um, which was uh, rhetorically successful but but deeply dishonest. And one of the first things he did was get rid of it on the first day in office, one of his first fifteen executive orders. But we've n- now seen some red states. Uh, inspired by the executive order, um, starting to say, hey, wait a minute, we don't want this in our classrooms. We don't want this in our state governments. And actually, three states have now introduced legislation. Uh, West Virginia recently, uh, before that, New Hampshire, and before that, Arkansas. And I think there's going to be some other states in the coming weeks also introducing legislation. And it's bringing up these very interesting questions. Um, And I think some, uh, frankly, some uncomfortable questions for people on the left who've been operating with impunity um, because people are now starting to see, hey, wait a minute, these very soft and anodyne concepts, uh, abstract nouns like diversity, inclusion, equity, when you actually see the very specific instances of what they're teaching, um, this kind of halo of, of, of neutrality disappears and the reality of these programs emerges. And I think state legislators are very wise uh, to try to stop them. Well, your work is, is certainly contributing to this effort, Chris. Uh, uh, I wanted to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, For listeners, please check out Chris Rufo's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description, and you can follow him on Twitter, at RealChrisRufo. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at CityJournal underscore MI. Um, And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Thanks again, Chris, uh, for the great work you're doing. And uh, we look forward to reading more in this very important series you've been authoring. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.